0: Hello, it's Mark from Casting Through Ancient Greece here. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to give a quick podcast recommendation, but I'll hand it over to Ramsey from Battlefield Command History Podcast to tell you more. Battlefield Command Podcast will take you into the very heart of battles, ranging from the ancient world down to the wars of decolonization. You will be able to learn the strategies and tactics of military commanders throughout time. You can see the events play out from the viewpoints of the average soldier with sources permitting. My podcast allows listeners to follow the story of how the battles begin, how they are fought, and finally the aftermath of the engagements. Find Battlefield Command History Podcast on whichever audio platform serves you best for podcasts. When the Athenians saw them on the summit, some leapt from the wall to their death. Others sought sanctuary in the inner shrine of the temple, but the Persians who had got up first made straight for the gates, flung them open and slaughtered those in the sanctuary. Having left not one of them alive, they stripped the temple of its treasures and burnt everything on the Acropolis. Xerxes, now absolute master of Athens, dispatched a rider to Susa with news for Artabanus of his success. Herodotus from the Histories Hello, I'm Mark Selleck and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 23, The Fall of Athens. The attempt to hold the Persians in the north of Greece had failed. The pass at Thermopylae had fallen well before a large army could be assembled to meet the Persians. The plan had been for the Spartans to assemble an army with the other Hellenic League cities once the proceedings of the Olympic Festival and Carneia were complete. The Athenians were already deployed with all of their manpower committed to the fleet but now the resistance blocking the Persian advance had been overcome. At Thermopylae, the treachery from the nightmare that was Ephialtes had seen Leonidas's position outflanked and surrounded, with not just him and his 300 Spartans slaughtered, but a few thousand Greeks lay dead. At Artemisium, the Greeks had been engaging the larger Persian fleet, with careful tactical consideration. Although they had been coming out on top each day, the attrition rates were heavily in the Persians' favour. The decision to fall back from their position had been made once news of the disaster at Thermopylae arrived. They wasted no time in getting underway. Greece was now open to Xerxes and his forces. No other organised resistance existed in northern and central Greece. The Olympic truce that was in effect saw that only a small force could be mustered together, and they had been destroyed. Other defensive measures were taking place, though. Down at the Corinthian Isthmus, although the Peloponnesian states had agreed to fight further north in Greece, they were constructing a defensive wall, effectively cutting off the Peloponnese to the rest of Greece, and handing over access to Xerxes. The cities that lay north of the Isthmus were now left to either flee their lands, submit to the great king, or be resigned to the fate that waited as the Persian army marched on them. Athens had been evacuating the city before the battles at Thermopylae and Artemisium. After all, the oracle at Delphi had prophesied their fall. Though people still remained in Athens, where returned after weeks of no news of the Persian advance. Now that the news of the battles to the north had not gone in their favour, coupled with the news that the defensive wall of Corinth and the lack of a Greek army marching north, there was now a heightened sense of urgency for many to flee the city. A message was able to reach the withdrawing Greek fleet and request them to put in at Salamis, an island just under two kilometres from the western coast of Attica, to assist in the evacuation. Presumably, the desired destination for the fleet was at a port at the Peloponnese. The Athenians were able to convince the other contingents to alter their course to Salamis, to help bring their women and children to safety. The Athenians then made their way to Athens' port, Ephaleron, to help evacuate Athens and the surrounding regions. The refugees would be transported to Troezen on the Peloponnese, Aegina, an island in the Saronic Gulf, and Salamis. Some of the Athenians were apprehensive of leaving their homes and livelihoods, Herodotus talks of a story with a religious connection that would help convince some to leave. The Athenians say that the Acropolis is guarded by a snake, which lives in the temple. Indeed, they believe so literally in its existence that they put out monthly offerings for it to eat, in the form of honey cake. Now in the past, the honey cake used to always be consumed, but on this occasion it was untouched. The temple priestess told them of this, and in consequence, believing that the goddess herself had abandoned the Acropolis they were all the more ready to evacuate the town. One can't help but wonder if Themistocles had a hand in the tale of the snake's disappearance. If the patron goddess Athena had abandoned the city, that would have not made for a good omen for those still there. Although a great many Athenians did leave Athens, some could not be convinced, and still had faith in the Oracle's wooden wall being a palisade around the Acropolis. Among the refugees was a young boy named Pericles, who in the future would go on to lead Athens during its height. For now, he was being shipped off to safety while his father Xanthippus, who commanded a trireme and would become the leader of the Athenian fleet the following year, made for Salamis aboard his ship. Everyone evacuating could only take the bare necessities with them. Everything else had to be left behind, including domestic animals. Plutarch tells us of Xanthippus' departure after leaving his possessions. Xanthippus, the father of Pericles, had a dog that would not endure to stay behind but leapt into the sea and swam along by the galley's side till he came to the island of Salamis, where he sainted away and died. And that spot in the island, which is still called the Dog's Grave, is said to be his. Athens and the surrounding regions were for now the most part abandoned, but a portion of the population had stayed behind for various reasons, and they would encounter Xerxes and his forces, who were determined to obtain revenge on their city. Back at Thermopylae and Artemisium, the Persians had not pursued the Greeks right away. The fleet had taken up the old Greek positions around Artemisium and began overrunning the villages in the area. While this was taking place, a ship arrived with a messenger sent by Xerxes, who announced that the great king was granting leave to all those who wished to see the battlefield where the Greeks had dared stand before him. Before Xerxes allowed his forces to tour the battlefield, he had it prepared to highlight his victory and the cost to his own army in achieving that victory hidden away. Herodotus records that 20,000 of Xerxes' troops were killed at the pass, and that all but 1,000 were taken away and buried out of sight. This way he would be showing a sprinkling of his own dead amongst the many Greek fallen. Many men from the fleet took advantage of the leave offered, and not enough boats were available to accommodate all that wanted to visit. The ones lucky enough to make it to Thermopylae were taken through the battlefield, with all the Greek dead presented, as Spartans or Thespians. Though, they would have made up only a small part of the fallen Greeks, as many others had been killed in the fighting, including many of the helots and other slaves that had accompanied the Greek army. Though, they so much more impressive if Xerxes had been fighting an entire army of Spartans. It would seem that Xerxes' attempt at hiding the real cost of the battle didn't go unnoticed by the visitors from the fleet. Herodotus suggests that this is due to the sight of the battlefield, and the tourists disbelieving that so few of their troops fell against what was before them. We can probably imagine that as some of the men from the fleet arrived on land, many stories would have been swapped between the troops of the army and the navy, and perhaps a truer account of what took place over the three days, making its way around the ranks. Enough time had passed to allow the army to recover and prepare the march deeper into Greece. With the visitors now heading back to Artemisium, the army made ready to move out. The leading formations and scouting parties were Greeks from Thessaly, all too eager to guide the Persian army through Phocian lands, which lay ahead. The Thessalians and Phocaeans were bitter rivals, and the two regions had their fair share of wars with each other. Herodotus tells us that Phocis was one of the only regions in the northern areas of Greece which did not meet though he puts the reason for this at their hatred of the Thessalians, not any notion of Pan-Hellenism. The Persians marched through Dorus and then into Phocis. The lands that had submitted to Xerxes were mostly left untouched by violence. Once the Persians reached the lands of Phocis, though, everything changed. Most of the Phacaians had fled their cities and villages, either to the Parnassus Mountains or to friendly regions west. Every city, village and temple that the Persians marched into was razed to the ground. Those who had decided to stay and not flee were treated as the enemy, and much killing and rape took place. The Persians were unleashed and could gain their fill of loot and women, Stories from fleeing for surely would have filtered southward, coming as a warning to those regions standing in defiance of the Persians, and yet to have had them enter their lands. After marching through Phocis, the Persian army was at the border of Boeotia, and here Xerxes had decided to split his forces. The main part of the army would march through Boeotian territory towards Attica, while a smaller force would be sent against a particularly rich and important religious shrine, sacred to all Greeks, Delphi. Delphi was in the region of Phocis, but was not on the path of the Persian army's march. Now though, such an important shrine could not be left untouched, so this detachment was tasked with the mission of looting and destroying it. In Boeotia, many of the cities and villages had been submitting as the Persian army was marching into Greece. To ensure that when the Persians arrived in their region, they would not be treated as enemies, the Boeotians headed by Thebes had been in diplomatic contact with King Alexander of Macedonia, a trusted friend of King Xerxes. Not to be confused with Alexander the Great, who would rule over 150 years later. Remember, Macedonia had also offered earth and water to Xerxes. After coming to an agreement, and presumably large amounts of gold changing hands, Macedonian troops were sent ahead to guarantee the safety of the cities and villages that had submitted. The general foot soldier in such a large army would have had very little idea of who was friendly and who was the enemy in a foreign land, or most likely didn't care all that much. They were after food, shelter, loot and women. This would have also assisted Xerxes, as we can think of the Macedonians as a sort of military police, ensuring the average Persian soldier didn't undermine Xerxes' policy of treating fairly those who had submitted to him. For the most part, all of Boeotia had submitted, but there were two exceptions. Thespiae and Plataea. They would have no Macedonian garrison guaranteeing their safety. The detachment had split from the main Persian force, marched west towards Delphi, While Xerxes continued into Boeotia, all of the untouched villages that they encountered were ravaged on the march. Word of the Persian advance reached Delphi, who consulted their oracle about what to do with all the riches. When people came to consult the oracle, it was normal for them to bring some sort of offering to Apollo. So over the years, the shrine had become very wealthy. The oracle had responded that he, Apollo, was quite capable at guarding his own treasure. The people of Delphi, then turned to saving themselves. Like the other Phocaeans, they fled to other friendly regions, and some into the Parnassus mountains. All that was left at Delphi was 60 men and the priest of the oracle. With the Persians now in sight of Delphi, divine intervention now came into play, as no army led by a mere mortal was going to disturb the most sacred shrine to Apollo. With only 61 men present at Delphi, rumours and tales were sure to have circulated, if the Persians could not capture the shrine. Herodotus heard these tales and retold them a generation or so later. Firstly, within the temple hung sacred weapons, which no man could handle. But the priests had come running to tell the rest of the defenders that they all now lay outside on their own accord, as if ready to defend the site. As the Persians advanced through the mountainous terrain, a storm had descended on the area, with a loud mighty roar coming from the temple ahead lightning had struck within the ranks and caused the peaks of mountains to fall and crush some of the marching troops. All of this caused great panic amongst the Persians, with superstition getting the better of them as they had not yet encountered any men defending the site. The troops affected by this divine intervention panicked and started fleeing back through the rest of the Persian force, spreading the panic to those not aware of what was happening ahead. The men at Delphi then fell on those Persians wounded or caught by the surprise of events, here also, the gods were at work, as is reported that two giant hoplites descended from Delphi and joined in the slaughter. The rest of the detachment got away and made their way back to the main army in Boeotia, unsuccessful in their mission. Xerxes, with all of Boeotia under his control, now crossed with his army into Attica, and where the ultimate goal of his revenge lay, the city of Athens. Though the Persians were not just looking for simple revenge. They had been, since the time of Cyrus the Great, in the business of expanding their empire. Again, as the Persians marched, all of the countryside and villages who had not taken the sensible act of offering earth and water were plundered and burnt to the ground. Eventually, the Acropolis could be seen in the distance. After leaving Sardis in mid-April, the army now had Athens in sight in early September. As the approach to Athens continued, Xerxes discovered that Athens and its surrounds were mostly deserted. Only a small following Athenians remained on the Acropolis, believing that they had interpreted the prophecy given to Athens by the Delphic Oracle correctly. They were sure that the wooden palisade that surrounded the Acropolis was the wooden wall referred to. Once arriving at the Acropolis, Xerxes had the army centred on the hill of Ares, or Areopagus, which lay opposite the Acropolis. And from here, siege operations were directed against the defenders. The belief in the wooden wall quickly evaporated when Persian archers were drawn up fired volleys of burning arrows into the wooden palisade undermining their interpretation of the wooden wall. Although the palisade was destroyed the Acropolis was still a formidable defensive position. Xerxes attempted to reason with the defenders using the descendants of Pisistratus, who had been part of his court since Hippias' exile. The Athenians refused to even entertain the idea of surrendering their position and instead kept on defending against the Persian advances. The Athenians who occupied the Acropolis were not so numerous enough to defend the entire perimeter. The defence focused on areas considered vulnerable to attack, while those areas that were considered too difficult to ascend were left unguarded. Eventually as the siege continued, the Persians noticed that these areas had been left undefended, and it was here where groups of them were able to climb unhindered. Once the Athenians noticed the gap in their defence, it was too late. The Persians had now come atop the Acropolis in force. From here the defence of the Acropolis ceased. Some threw themselves from the walls, to their death below while others took refuge in the temples and shrines. The Persians who had breached the defences now sought to open all the gates and to allow the rest of the army in. No quarter was given, all of the Athenians were murdered where they were found. The temples and shrines plundered. Once everything of worth was removed, fires were lit and soon the entire Acropolis was ablaze. One can imagine the satisfaction that would have come over Xerxes as smoke and flame rose from the Acropolis while he watched on from the hill of Ares. The buildings and temples burnt to the ground, much like what happened at Sardis some 22 years earlier. We hear on the next day, Xerxes had some Athenian exiles that had been travelling with the army go up into the ruins and make sacrifices to their gods. Maybe Xerxes still feared the gods even though they weren't his, or the Greeks wanted to believe he did anyway. Though it was normal practice for the Persians to allow subjugated peoples within the empire to still worship their traditional gods he might have been looking to the future and enacting this program as soon as possible. What the Athenians saw up on the Acropolis would suggest to them that Athena had not completely abandoned Athens. On top of the Acropolis within one of the temples was an olive tree, which was sacred to Athens. If you recall from our episode on Athens, it was the gift provided by Athena that the Athenians had chosen and therefore named their city after her. Well, this olive tree had been destroyed in the fire, but the exiles saw a shoot one and a half feet growing out of this burnt stump. So perhaps Athens was not Xerxes yet. With the Persians continuing their advance south into Greece and the Athenians having assisted the evacuation of Athens, other Greek ships had been assembling off the coast near Troezen on the Peloponnese. With the fighting at Thermopylae and Artemisium, other contingents were still collecting crews and ships to help in the defence or providing further reinforcements to their already committed contingents. The rallying point was at Troezen, with the intention of deploying from there. With the retreat from Artemisium, it was assumed that the main fleet would also make its way back to Troezen. With the change in plans, and the fleet now at Salamis, the Troezen fleet now set sail to join the rest of the Greeks. With the joining of the two fleets, the Greek naval force now numbered more than the 321 deployed at Artemisium. After taking into account the losses, the total Herodotus gives for the fleet at Salamis was now 378 triremes. So if we add up the list of how many ships each contingent supplied, we get 366, with him also saying that two ships from the Persian side defected to the Greeks, which slightly bumped up this number before the battle begins. Other totals have also been provided, namely by Aeschylus, who was a poet and had fought at Salamis. He has in his poem, The Persians, a messenger revealing to the Persian queen that the Greeks numbered about 300 ships, though maybe we need to keep in mind that this was a work of poetry written for the Athenian audience. Rounding down the numbers would have made their victory seem even more impressive. No clear plan had been outlined to make a stand at Salamis. All the Greeks had saw Salamis being was a new assembly point for the fleet instead of a Troezen. Although it seems one man, Themistocles, had already begun devising a plan in his head. After Artemisium, Themistocles learnt that the promised army from the Peloponnese that was supposed to have marched into Boeotia did not eventuate. Coupled with this, he had learnt that the defensive wall at the Corinthian isthmus had gone ahead. His city Athens was now left defenceless. The Peloponnesians had left them high and dry. One cannot help think that during the withdrawal and time in port at Salamis, Themistocles would have been devising a plan to bring the fight north of the Peloponnese. Once all the commanders had assembled, the intention was to hold a council to discuss the next course of action. Once all had assembled... Eurybiades held a council of war to outline the fleet's next course of action. He had opened the floor to any commanders for suitable suggestions of where they should engage the Persians. It was clear though, by suitable, he was asking about where in the Peloponnese, as he made it clear it needed to be from territory the Greeks controlled. In his eyes, Attica and anywhere north of the Isthmus was already lost to the Persians. The main consensus was that the fleet should fall back to a port on the Peloponnese, where they could be in range and support the defensive line across the isthmus at Corinth. It was argued that if the fleet fought forward of this position and was defeated, they would be easily cut off and surrounded, where if they fought from the Peloponnese and disaster struck, they could fall back into the friendly territory and more options would be open to them. Themistocles must have been standing there quite perplexed at the defeatist attitude his fellow commanders were voicing. The council was interrupted by a messenger who had arrived from Athens, He brought the news that the Persians had marched through Boeotia and into Attica, destroying the farms and villages they passed through. They had arrived at Athens and had captured the Acropolis, reducing it to ruins. The news had seen some of the commander's resolve shaken to the core, and instead of waiting for the meeting to conclude, they headed back to their ships and set sail right away. Though, the majority remained, and their decision to fight a battle in the defence of the Isthmus was cemented by the news. All the commanders departed the council to ready their ships and crews, as there was much to be done if they were to depart at daybreak the next day. Themistocles seems to have been at somewhat of a loss and maybe slumped into a slight depression at the decision that was arrived at during the panic at the meeting. We don't hear any accounts of him interjecting during the council to put forward his view, which was very unlike him. Upon returning to where his ship was beached and presumably the other Athenian ships, news would have been circulating amongst the Athenians of the fate of their homeland. He told the other Athenian ship commanders of the decision reached at the council. One of the commanders spoke up against this course of action, which seems to have injected some fire back into Themistocles. At the council, he was far outnumbered, and hearing nothing but defeatism. Now he was in the presence of fellow Athenians, who helped him shift his focus back on track. One of the other Athenian commanders made his fears known. If the Greeks did not make a stand here, The fleet would ultimately disperse, with the many contingents being more concerned about trying to save their own cities or villages, rather than fight for all of Hellas. Ultimately, there would be no Hellas, to defend as the Persians would conquer each region, one by one, with no united force to oppose them. After hearing him out, Themistocles departed the Athenian camp right away, heading straight towards Eurybiade's ship. Themistocles was invited on board his ship to discuss his urgent concerns. Themistocles, and Themistocles, in Themistoclean manner, now presented the argument given to him as his own, while also raising some of his own points. His aim was to have Eurybiades recall the council so he could convince the other contingent commanders to stay at Salamis and fight. Eventually, Eurybiades was convinced and ordered the contingent commanders to reconvene for a second council. Once all the commanders had assembled, the old Themistocles sprang into action. He didn't wait for Eurybiades to address them and explain the great urgency for the second council. He had decided not to use the same exact argument that was presented to him back on the ships and which he had presented to Eurybiades. He did not want to accuse them of wanting to abandon the cause. He needed them on side. I think here, instead of summarising his argument, I'm going to read the speech Herodotus has Themistocles present to the assembled council. It is now in your power to save Greece. If you take my advice and engage the enemy fleet here in Salamis, instead of withdrawing to the Isthmus, as the other people suggest. Let me put two plans before you, and you can weigh them up and see which is the better. Take the Isthmus first. If you fight there, it will have to be in the open sea. And that will be greatly to our disadvantage, with our smaller numbers and our slower ships. Moreover, even if everything else goes well, you will lose Salamis, Megara and Aegina. Again, if the enemy fleet comes south, the army will follow it. So you yourself will be responsible for drawing it to the Peloponnese, thus putting the whole of Greece in peril. Now for my plan. It will bring, if you adopt it, the following advantages. First, we shall fight in the narrow waters, and there, with our inferior numbers, we shall win, providing things go as we may reasonably expect. Fighting in a confined space favours us, but the open sea favours the enemy. Secondly, Salamis, where we have put all our women and children, will be preserved. And thirdly, for you the most important point of all, you will be fighting in defence of the Peloponnese by remaining here just as much by withdrawing to the Isthmus. Nor, if you have the sense to follow my advice, you will draw the Persian army to the Peloponnese. If we beat them at sea, as I expect we shall, they will not advance to attack you on the Isthmus, or come any further than Attica. They will retreat in disorder, and we shall gain by the preservation of Megara, Hegina and Salamis, where an oracle foretold our victory. Let a man lay his plans with due regard to common sense, and he will usually succeed, otherwise he will find that God is unlikely to favour human designs. The Corinthian commander, Adimantus, attacked Themistocles, accusing him of being a mere refugee, and they should not have a say in matters, as he was a man without a country now. Seeing that this measured approach was not having the desired effect on some of the commanders, Themistocles now turned to pointing out some hard truths to them. He addressed Adimentus' rebuke by pointing out that Athens had upwards of 200 ships, and therefore Athens still existed. Athens was more than a physical city. She was her people, and the power they exerted. While this was the case, she was still a more powerful city than that of Corinth. Before anyone else could speak, he then shifted his attention to Eurybiades, and with fire still burning inside, he said, As for you, if you stay here and play the man, well and good. Go, and you will be the ruin of Greece. In this war, everything depends on the fleet. I beg you to take my advice. If you refuse, we will immediately put our families aboard and sail for Cirrus in Italy. It has long been ours, and the oracles have foretold that Athenians must live there some day. Where will you be without the Athenian fleet? When you have lost it, will you remember my words? Eurybiades knew all too well that Themistocles was right. There was no way the Greeks could oppose the Persians at sea if the Athenians left. They made up almost half the entire fleet, and he was not prepared to see if he was bluffing. With all the debate about the best course of action, Eurybiades now took the view counter to his fellow Peloponnesians. The fleet would remain at Salamis, and make battle with the Persians there. Themistocles, as well as the Athenians, would have been pleased with the decision made. But he would have also been somewhat wary. He knew any change in matters could alter the decision reached. Plus, Eurybiade's ruling would have not been popular with the other Peloponnesian commanders. They would seek any reason to have the fleet sail for the Peloponnese. About a week after the Battle of Artemisium, the Persian fleet had now arrived some 15 kilometers from the Greek position. They made use of the Athenian port at Phaleron, and also occupied what would become the port of Piraeus. They had set sail from Euboea four days after the battle, taking another three to arrive and meet back up with the army. Herodotus believed that on the eve of the Battle of Salamis, the Persian fleet numbered what it had been before Artemisium, with the losses being made up from reinforcements arriving and joining the fleet in the week leading up to Salamis. Most modern historians believe that this fleet was most likely around 700 triremes, not the 1,200 or so that Herodotus reports, though it still far outnumbered the Greek fleet. Where the Persians had beached and anchored their fleet suited the strategy that they would like to have followed. This would have surely been a consideration amongst the commanders. If they could draw the Greeks out from their position at Salamis and into the open waters of the Saronic Gulf, their numbers and lighter ships would have a major advantage. Though if the Greeks could draw them into the straits between Salamis and Attica, these advantages would be nullified. Events leading to the battle would determine who would be drawn to where. With the Persian fleet now reunited with the army, Xerxes wished to go to the coast and address his fleet commanders and hear what they proposed to do about the Greek fleet. He had all of the different contingent commanders seated according to rank, and then had his top general, Mardonius, go around to each of them asking what they thought about engaging the Greeks at sea. It seems Xerxes wanted to fight the Greeks and destroy their fleet once and for all, so probably best that the commanders agree with this course of action. All were in favour of giving battle to the Greeks, All except one. The one commander who advocated for a different approach was also an anomaly in the ancient world. Artemisia was a woman and the tyrant or queen of Halicarnassus, a city-state located in the region of Caria in Anatolia. If you recall, this was also the hometown of Herodotus, so it probably comes as no surprise he is our major source on her. He would have most likely heard stories of her as he was growing up. Now on campaign, She commanded five ships that Halicarnassus supplied for the Persian invasion. She had already proven herself in battle at Artemisium and thought her opinion would hold some weight with the great king. Artemisia told Mardonius to report back to Xerxes what she said, while her fellow commanders looked on horrified that she would suggest some different course of action. She advised Xerxes to spare his ships as he had already taken his main goal of the war. Athens had been captured, She advised that although the Greeks were less in number, they were far better sailors than what the Persian fleet provided. Probably not going to go down well with the other commanders listening. She advised on a land campaign directed at the Isthmus. The Greeks she had heard were on the edge of collapse with their league, and their fleet would soon scatter, given enough time. She feared that if the Persian fleet offered battle, it would be destroyed and the army would soon follow the same fate. She then continued to flatter the king before calling out the supposed allies of his, suggesting they did not have his best intentions at hand, and not to put his faith in them to win a battle at sea. Those not horrified at her frankness, but were jealous of the influence she held, would have most certainly been smiling, thinking that Xerxes would punish her for suggesting something different to what he likely wanted to do. But when the response collected by Mandonius was brought back to Xerxes, he showed respect for what Artemisia had said. She had served him well in the past, and so he was prepared to listen to her opinion. It is impossible to know if Artemisia really had put forward this suggestion, or if she is serving as the fateful warning to Xerxes, in Herodotus' account. Xerxes, though, had decided to follow the majority of his commanders in engaging the Greeks at sea. And really, this is what his intention was from the beginning. He believed that the fleet had not achieved its mission at Artemisium because he was not there to oversee proceedings. Surely, if the great king were present, the men would have fought much harder. Xerxes now ordered for the fleet to make ready for battle, so it would seem that the Battle of Salamis would soon develop. No one had made a clear plan for the battle to take place there. It would come about as a result of events taking place over the past week. For one side, it would happen to be a matter of being in the right place at the right time. For the other, the wrong place at the wrong time. On the eve of Salamis, the Persians were determined to give battle. The Greeks A decision was reached, but for how long that decision would last was anyone's guess. The different Greek contingents were far from united in their enthusiasm to fight at Salamis. Themistocles knew this. Perhaps if they had no other choice but to fight there, they would sail out as united force, with the united cause. Thank you for your continued support. If you have been enjoying the series, please consider leaving a review at iTunes or your favourite podcasting platform they go a long way into supporting the show. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook and Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 24, The Battle of Salamis.